Patience Chapter 4 Start by Building Self-Esteem When you are depressed, you invariably believe that you are worthless. The worse the depression, the more you feel this way. You are not alone. A survey by Dr. Aaron Beck revealed that over 80% of depressed patients expressed self-dislike. Furthermore, Dr. Beck found that depressed patients see themselves as deficient in the very qualities they value most highly. Intelligence, achievement, popularity, attractiveness, health, and strength. He said a depressed self-image can be characterized by the four Ds. You feel defeated, defective, deserted, and deprived. Almost all negative emotional reactions inflict their damage only as a result of low self-esteem. A poor self-image is the magnifying glass that can transform a trivial mistake or an imperfection into an overwhelming symbol of personal defeat. For example, Eric, a first-year law student, feels a sense of panic in class. When the professor calls on me, I'll probably goof up. Although Eric's fear of goofing up was foremost on his mind, my dialogue with him revealed that a sense of personal inadequacy was the real cause of the problem. David, suppose you did goof up in class. Why would that be particularly upsetting to you? Why is that so tragic? Eric, then I would make a fool of myself. Suppose you did make a fool of yourself. Why would that be upsetting? Because then everyone would look down on me. Suppose people did look down on you. What then? Then I would feel miserable. Why? Why is it that you would have to feel miserable if people were looking down on you? Well, that would mean I wouldn't be a worthwhile person. Furthermore, it might ruin my career. I'd get bad grades, and maybe I could never be an attorney. Suppose you didn't become an attorney. Let's assume, for the purposes of discussion, that you did flunk out. Why would that be particularly upsetting to you? That would mean that I had failed at something I've wanted all my life. And what would that mean to you? Life would be empty. It would mean I was a failure. It would mean I was worthless. In this brief dialogue, Eric showed that he believed it would be terrible to be disapproved of or to make a mistake or to fail. He seemed convinced that if one person looked down on him, then everyone would. It was as if the word reject would suddenly be stamped on his forehead for everyone to see. He seemed to have no sense of self-esteem that was not contingent upon approval and or success. He measured himself by the way others looked at him and by what he had achieved. If his cravings for approval and accomplishment were not satisfied, Eric sensed he would be nothing because there would be no true support from within. If you feel that Eric's perfectionist drive for achievement and approval is self-defeating and unrealistic, you are right. But to Eric, this drive was realistic and reasonable. If you are now depressed or have ever been depressed, you may find it much harder to recognize the illogical thinking patterns which cause you to look down on yourself. In fact, you are probably convinced that you really are inferior or worthless, and any suggestion to the contrary is likely to sound foolish and dishonest. Unfortunately, when you are depressed, you may not be alone in your conviction about your personal inadequacy. In many cases, you will be so persuasive and persistent in your maladaptive belief that you are defective and no good, you may lead your friends, family, and even your therapist into accepting this idea of yourself. For many years, psychiatrists have tended to buy into the negative self-evaluation system of depressed individuals, 
without probing the validity of what the patients are saying about themselves. This is illustrated in the writings of such a keen observer as Sigmund Freud in his treatise Mourning and Melancholia, which forms the basis for the orthodox psychoanalytic approach to treating depression. In this classic study, Freud said that when the patient says he is worthless, unable to achieve, and morally despicable, he must be right. Consequently, it was fruitless for the therapist to disagree with the patient. Freud believed the therapist should agree that the patient is, in fact, uninteresting, unlovable, petty, self-centered, and dishonest. These qualities describe a human being's true self, according to Freud, and the disease process simply makes the truth more obvious. The patient represents his ego to us as worthless, incapable of any achievement, and morally despicable. He reproaches himself, vilifies himself, and expects to be cast out and punished. It would be equally fruitless from a scientific and therapeutic point of view to contradict a patient who brings these accusations against his ego. He must surely be right in some way, emphasis mine, and be describing something that is as it seems to him to be. Indeed, we must at once confirm some of his statements without reservation. He really is as lacking in interest and incapable of love and achievement as he says. Emphasis mine. He also seems to us justified in certain other self-accusations. It is merely that he has a keener eye for the truth than other people who are not melancholic. Emphasis mine. When in his heightened self-criticism he describes himself as petty, egoistic, dishonest, lacking in independence, one whose sole aim has been to hide the weaknesses of his own nature. It may be so far as we know that he has come pretty near to understanding himself. Emphasis mine. We only wonder why a man has to be ill before he can be accessible to truth of this kind. Sigmund Freud, Mourning and Melancholia The way a therapist handles your feelings of inadequacy is crucial to the cure, as your sense of worthlessness is a key to depression. The question also has considerable philosophical relevance. Is human nature inherently defective? Are depressed patients actually facing the ultimate truth about themselves? And what, in the final analysis, is the source of genuine self-esteem? This, in my opinion, is the most important question you will ever confront. First, you cannot earn worth through what you do. Achievements can bring you satisfaction, but not happiness. Self-worth based on accomplishments is a pseudo-esteem, not the genuine thing. My many successful but depressed patients would all agree— nor can you base a valid sense of self-worth on your looks, talent, fame, or fortune. Marilyn Monroe, Marth Rothko, Freddie Prinz, and a multitude of famous suicide victims attest to this grim truth. Nor can love, approval, friendship, or a capacity for close, caring human relationships add one iota to your inherent worth. The great majority of depressed individuals are in fact very much loved, but it doesn't help one bit because... Self-love and self-esteem are missing. At the bottom line, only your own sense of self-worth determines how you feel. So, you may now be asking with some exasperation, how do I get a sense of self-worth? The fact is I feel damn inadequate, and I'm convinced I'm really not as good as other people. I don't believe there's anything I can do to change those rotten feelings because that's the way I basically am. One of the cardinal features of cognitive therapy is that it stubbornly refuses to buy into your sense of worthlessness. In my practice, I lead my patients through a systemic reevaluation of their negative self-image. 
I raise the same question over and over again. Are you really right when you insist that somewhere inside you are essentially a loser? The first step is to take a close look at what you say about yourself when you insist you are no good. The evidence you present in defense of your worthlessness will usually, if not always, make no sense. This opinion is based on a recent study by doctors Aaron Beck and David Braff, which indicated that there is actually a formal thinking disturbance in depressed patients. Depressed individuals were compared with schizophrenic patients and with undepressed persons in their ability to interpret the meaning of a number of proverbs, such as "a stitch in time saves nine." Both the schizophrenic and depressed patients made many logical errors and had difficulty in extracting the meaning of the proverbs. They were overly concrete and couldn't make accurate generalizations. Although the severity of the defect was obviously less profound and bizarre in the depressed patients than in the schizophrenic group, the depressed individuals were clearly abnormal as compared with the normal subjects. In practical terms, the study indicated that during periods of depression, you lose some of your capacity for clear thinking. You have trouble putting things into proper perspective. Negative events grow in importance until they dominate your entire reality, and you can't really tell that what is happening is distorted. It all seems very real to you. The illusion of hell you create is very convincing. The more depressed and miserable you feel, the more twisted your thinking becomes. And conversely, in the absence of mental distortion, you cannot experience low self-worth or depression. What types of mental errors do you make most generally when you look down on yourself? A good place to begin is with the list of distortions you began to master in Chapter Three. The most usual mental distortion to look out for when you are feeling worthless is all-or-nothing thinking. If you see life only in such extreme categories, you will believe your performance will be either great or terrible. Nothing else will exist. As a salesman told me, achieving 95% or better of my goal for monthly sales is acceptable. 94% or below is the equivalent of total failure. Not only is this all-or-nothing system of self-evaluation highly unrealistic and self-defeating, it creates overwhelming anxiety and frequent disappointment. A depressed psychiatrist who was referred to me noticed a lack of sexual drive and a difficulty in maintaining erections during a two-week period when he was feeling blue. His perfectionistic tendencies had dominated not only his illustrious professional career but also his sexual life. Consequently, he had intercourse regularly with his wife every other day, precisely on schedule for the twenty years of their married life. In spite of his decreased sex drive, which is a common symptom of depression, he told himself. I must continue to perform intercourse on schedule. This thought created such anxiety that he became increasingly unable to achieve a satisfactory erection. Because his perfect intercourse track record was broken, he now began clubbing himself with the nothing side of his all-or-nothing system and concluded, "I'm not a full marriage partner anymore. I'm a failure as a husband. I'm not even a man. I'm a worthless nothing." Although he was a competent and some might even say brilliant psychiatrist, he confided to me tearfully, "Doctor Burns, you and I both know it is an undeniable fact that I will never be able to have intercourse again." In spite of his years of medical training, he could actually convince himself of such a thought. Overcoming the sense of worthlessness. By now, you might be saying, "Okay, I can see that there is a certain illogic which lurks behind the sense of worthlessness." At least for some people, 
but they are basically winners. They're not like me. You seem to be treating famous physicians and successful businessmen. Anyone could have told you that their lack of self-esteem was illogical. But I really am a mediocre nothing. Others are, in fact, better looking and more popular and successful than I am. So what can I do about it? Nothing, that's what. My feeling of worthlessness is very valid. It's based on reality. So there is little consolation in being told to think logically. I don't think there's any way to make these awful feelings go away, unless I try to fool myself. And you and I both know that won't work. Let me first show you a couple of popular approaches used by many therapists, which I feel do not represent satisfactory solutions to your problem of worthlessness. Then I'll show you some approaches that will make sense and help you. In keeping with the belief that there is some deep truth in your conviction you are basically worthless, some psychotherapists may allow you to ventilate these feelings of inadequacy during a therapy session. There is undoubtedly some benefit to getting such feelings off your chest. The cathartic release may sometimes, but not always, result in a temporary mood elevation. However, if the therapist does not provide objective feedback about the validity of your self-evaluation, you may conclude that he agrees with you. And you may be right. You may, in fact, have fooled him as well as yourself. As a result, you probably will feel even more inadequate. Prolonged silences during therapy sessions may cause you to become more upset and preoccupied with your critical internal voice, much like a sensory deprivation experiment. This kind of non-directive therapy in which the therapist adopts a passive role frequently produces greater anxiety and depression for the patient. And even when you do feel better as a result of achieving emotional release with an empathetic and caring therapist, the sense of improvement is likely to be short-lived if you haven't significantly transformed the way you evaluate yourself and your life. Unless you substantially reverse your self-defeating thinking and behavior patterns, you are likely to slip back again into depression. Just as emotional ventilation for its own sake is usually not enough to overcome the sense of worthlessness, insight and psychological interpretation generally don't help either. For example, Jennifer was a writer who came for treatment for panic she experienced before publication of her novel. In the first session, she told me, I have been to several therapists. They have told me that my problem is perfectionism and impossible expectations and demands on myself. I also have learned that I probably picked up this trait from my mother, who is compulsive and perfectionistic. She can find 19 things wrong with an incredibly clean room. I always tried to please her, but rarely felt I succeeded, no matter how well I did. Therapists have told me, stop seeing everyone as your mother. Stop being so perfectionistic. But how do I do this? I'd like to, I want to, but no one ever was able to tell me how to go about it. Jennifer's complaint is one I hear nearly every day in my practice. Pinpointing the nature or origin of your problem may give you insight, but usually fails to change the way you act. That is not surprising. You have been practicing for years and years the bad mental habits that helped create your low self-esteem. It will take systematic and ongoing effort to turn the problem around. Does a stutterer stop stuttering because of his insight into the fact that he doesn't vocalize properly? Does a tennis player's game improve just because the coach tells him he hits the ball into the net too often? Since ventilation of emotions and insight, the two staples of the standard psychotherapeutic diet, won't help, what will? As a cognitive therapist, I have three aims in dealing with your sense of worthlessness. 
a rapid and decisive transformation in the way you think, feel, and behave. These results will be brought about in a systematic training program that employs simple, concrete methods you can apply on a daily basis. If you are willing to commit some regular time and effort to this program, you can expect success proportionate to the effort you put in. Are you willing? If so, we've come to the beginning. You're about to take the first crucial step toward an improved mood and self-image. I have developed many specific and easily applied techniques that can help you develop your sense of worth. As you read the following sections, keep in mind that simply reading them is not guaranteed to bolster your self-esteem, at least not for long. You will have to work at it and practice the various exercises. In fact, I recommend that you set some time aside each day to work at improving your self-image, because only in this way can you experience the fastest and most enduring personal growth. Specific Methods for Boosting Self-Esteem Talk back to that internal critic. A sense of worthlessness is created by your internal self-critical dialogue. It is self-degrading statements such as, I'm no damn good, I'm a shit, I'm inferior to other people, and so on, that create and feed your feelings of despair and poor self-esteem. In order to overcome this bad mental habit, three steps are necessary. A. Train yourself to recognize and write down the self-critical thoughts as they go through your mind. B. Learn why these thoughts are distorted. And C. Practice talking back to them so as to develop a more realistic self-evaluation system. One effective method for accompanying this is the triple column technique. Simply draw two lines down the center of a piece of paper to divide it into thirds. You'll find an example of what I mean by seeing figure 4-1 on the enhanced portion of this audiobook. Label the left-hand column, Automatic Thoughts, Self-Criticism, the middle column, Cognitive Distortion, and the right-hand column, Rational Response, Self-Defense. In the left-hand column, write down all those hurtful self-criticisms you make when you are feeling worthless and down on yourself. Suppose, for example, you suddenly realize you're late for an important meeting. Your heart sinks, and you're gripped with panic. Now ask yourself, what thoughts are going through my mind right now? What am I saying to myself? Why is this upsetting me? Then write these thoughts down in the left-hand column. You might have been thinking, I never do anything right, and I'm always late. Write these thoughts down in the left-hand column and number them. See figure 4-1. You might also have thought, everyone will look down at me. This shows what a jerk I am. Just as fast as these thoughts cross your mind, jot them down. Why? Because they are the very cause of your emotional upset. They rip away at you like knives tearing into your flesh. I'm sure you know what I mean because you felt it. What's the second step? You already began to prepare for this when you read Chapter 3. Using the list of Ten Cognitive Distortions, page 42, see if you can identify the thinking errors in each of your negative automatic thoughts. For instance, I never do anything right is an example of overgeneralization. Write this down in the middle column. Continue to pinpoint the distortions in your other automatic thoughts as shown in Figure 4.1. You are now ready for the crucial step in mood transformation, substituting a more rational, less upsetting thought in the right-hand column. You do not try to cheer yourself up by rationalizing or saying things you do not believe are objectively valid. Instead, try to recognize the truth. If what you write down in the rational response column is not convincing and realistic, 
it won't help you one bit. Make sure you believe in your rebuttal to self-criticism. This rational response can take into account what was illogical and erroneous about your self-critical automatic thought. For example, in answer to, I never do anything right, you could write, Forget that, I do some things right and some wrong, just like everyone else. I fouled up on my appointment, but let's not blow this up out of proportion. Suppose you cannot think of a rational response to a particular negative thought. Then just forget about it for a few days and come back to it later. You will usually be able to see the other side of the coin. As you work at the triple column technique for 15 minutes every day over a period of a month or two, you will find it gets easier and easier. Don't be afraid to ask other people how they would answer an upsetting thought if you can't figure out the appropriate rational response on your own. One note of caution. Do not use words describing your emotional reactions in the automatic thought column. Just write the thoughts that created the emotion. For example, suppose you notice your car has a flat tire. Don't write, I feel crappy, because you can't disprove that with a rational response. The fact is you do feel crappy. Instead, write down the thoughts that automatically flashed through your mind the moment you saw the tire. For example, I'm so stupid I should have gotten a new tire this last month. Or, oh hell, this is just my rotten luck. Then you can substitute rational responses, such as, it might have been better to get a new tire. But I'm not stupid, and no one can predict the future with certainty. This process won't put air in the tire, but at least you won't have to change it with a deflated ego. While it's best not to describe your emotions in the automatic thought column, it can be quite helpful to do some emotional accounting before and after you use the triple column technique to determine how much your feelings actually improve. You can do this very easily if you record how upset you are between 0 and 100% before you pinpoint and answer your automatic thoughts. In the previous example, you might note that you were 80% frustrated and angry at the moment you saw the flat tire. Then, once you complete the written exercise, you can record how much relief you experienced, say, to 40% or so. If there's a decrease, you'll know that the method has worked for you. A slightly more elaborate form developed by Dr. Aaron Beck called the Daily Record of Dysfunctional Thoughts allows you to record not only your upsetting thoughts, but also your feelings and the negative event that triggered them. There's a sample in Figure 4.2 on the enhanced portion of this audiobook. For example, suppose you're selling insurance and a potential customer insults you without provocation and hangs up on you. Describe the actual event in the situation column, but not in the automatic thoughts column. Then write down your feelings and the negative distorted thoughts that created them in the appropriate column. Finally, talk back to these thoughts and do your emotional accounting. Some individuals prefer to use the daily record of dysfunctional thoughts because it allows them to analyze negative events, thoughts, and feelings in a systematic way. Be sure to use the technique that feels most comfortable to you. Writing down your negative thoughts and rational responses may strike you as simplistic, ineffective, or even gimmicky. You might even share the feelings of some patients who initially refused to do this, saying, What's the point? It won't work. It couldn't work because I really am hopeless and worthless. This attitude can only serve as a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you are unwilling to pick up the tool and use it, you won't be able to do the job. Start by writing down your automatic thoughts and rational responses for 15 minutes every day for two weeks and see the effect this has on your mood, as measured by the Burns Depression Checklist. You may be surprised to note the beginning of a period of personal growth and a healthy change in your self-image.
This was the experience of Gail, a young secretary whose sense of self-esteem was so low that she felt in constant danger of being criticized by friends. She was so sensitive to her roommate's request to help clean up their apartment after a party that she felt rejected and worthless. She was initially so pessimistic about her chances for feeling better that I could barely persuade her to give the triple-column technique a try. When she reluctantly decided to try it, she was surprised to see how her self-esteem and mood began to undergo a rapid transformation. She reported that writing down the many negative thoughts that flowed through her mind during the day helped her gain objectivity. She stopped taking these thoughts so seriously. As a result of Gail's daily written exercises, she began to feel better, and her interpersonal relationships improved by a quantum leap. An excerpt from her written homework is included in Figure 4.3 on the enhancement. Gail's experience is not unusual. The simple exercise of answering your negative thoughts with rational responses on a daily basis is at the heart of the cognitive method. It is one of the most important approaches to changing your thinking. It is crucial to write down your automatic thoughts and rational responses. Do not try to do the exercise in your head. Writing them down forces you to develop much more objectivity than you could ever achieve by letting responses swirl through your mind. It also helps you locate the mental errors that depress you. The triple-column technique is not limited to problems of personal inadequacy, but can be applied to a great range of emotional difficulties in which distorted thinking plays a central role. You can take the major sting out of problems you would ordinarily assume are entirely realistic, such as bankruptcy, divorce, or severe mental illness. Finally, in this section on prophylaxis and personal growth, you will learn how to apply a slight variation on the automatic thought method to penetrate the part of your psyche where the causes of mood swings lurk. You will be able to expose and transform those pressure points in your mind that cause you to be vulnerable to depression in the first place. 2. Mental Biofeedback A second method which can be very useful involves monitoring your negative thoughts with a wrist counter. You can buy one at a sporting goods store or a golf shop. It looks like a wristwatch, is inexpensive, and every time you push the button, the number changes on the dial. Click the button each time a negative thought about yourself crosses your mind. Be on the constant alert for such thoughts. At the end of the day, note your daily total score and write it down in a logbook. At first, you will notice that the number increases. This will continue for several days as you get better and better at identifying your critical thoughts. Soon you will begin to notice that the daily total reaches a plateau for a week to ten days, and then it will begin to go down. This indicates that your harmful thoughts are diminishing and that you are getting better. This approach usually requires three weeks. It is not known with certainty why such a simple technique works so well, but systematic self-monitoring frequently helps develop increased self-control. As you learn to stop haranguing yourself, you will begin to feel much better. In case you decide to use a wrist counter, I want to emphasize it is not intended to be a substitute for setting aside 10 to 15 minutes each day to write down your distorted negative thoughts and answering them as outlined in the previous pages. The written method cannot be bypassed because it exposes to the light of day the illogical nature of the thoughts that trouble you. Once you are doing this regularly, you can then use your wrist counter to nip your painful cognitions in the bud at other times. 3. Cope, don't mope. The woman who thought she was a bad mother. As you read the previous sections, the following objection may have occurred to you. All this deals with is my thoughts. But what if my problems are realistic? 
What good will it do to me to think differently? I have some real inadequacies that need to be dealt with. Nancy is a 34-year-old mother of two who felt this way. Six years ago, she divorced her first husband and has just recently remarried. She is completing her college degree on a part-time basis. Nancy is usually animated and enthusiastic and quite committed to her family. However, she has experienced episodic depressions for many years. During those low periods, she becomes extremely critical of herself and others and expresses self-doubt and insecurity. She was referred to me during such a period of depression. I was struck by the vehemence of her self-reproach. She had received a note from her son's teacher stating that he was having some difficulty in school. Her immediate reaction was to mope and blame herself. The following is an excerpt from our therapy session. Nancy, I should have worked with Bobby on his homework because now he is disorganized and not ready for school. I spoke to Bobby's teacher, who said Bobby lacks self-confidence and doesn't follow directions adequately. Consequently, his schoolwork has been deteriorating. I had a number of self-critical thoughts after the call, and I felt suddenly dejected. I began to tell myself that a good mother spends time with her kids on some activity every night. I'm responsible for his poor behavior, lying, not doing well in school. I just can't figure out how to handle him. I'm really a bad mother. I began to think he was stupid and about to flunk and how it was all my fault. My first strategy was to teach her how to attack the statement, I am a bad mother, because I felt this self-criticism was hurtful and unrealistic, creating a paralyzing internal anguish which could not help her in her efforts to guide Bobby through his crisis. David. Okay, what's wrong with this statement? I am a bad mother. Nancy. Well, is there any such thing as a bad mother? Of course. What is your definition of a bad mother? A bad mother is one who does a bad job of raising her kids. She isn't as effective as other mothers, so her kids turn out bad. It seems obvious. So you would say a bad mother is one who is low on mothering skills? That's your definition? Some mothers lack mothering skills. But all mothers lack mothering skills to some extent. They do? There is no mother in this world who is perfect in all mothering skills, so they all lack mothering skills in some part. According to your definition, it would seem that all mothers are bad mothers. I feel that I'm a bad mother, but not everybody is. Well, define it again. What is a bad mother? A bad mother is someone who does not understand her children or is constantly making damaging errors, errors that are detrimental. According to this new definition, you're not a bad mother, and there are no bad mothers because no one constantly makes damaging errors. No one? You said that a bad mother constantly makes damaging errors. There is no such person who constantly makes damaging errors 24 hours a day. Every mother is capable of doing some things right. Well, there can be abusive parents who are always punishing, hitting. You read about them in the papers. Their children end up battered. That could certainly be a bad mother. There are parents who resort to abusive behavior, that's true, and these individuals could improve their behavior, which might make them feel better about themselves and their children. But it is not realistic to say that such parents are constantly doing abusing or damaging things, and it's not going to help matters by attaching the label bad to them. Such individuals do have a problem with aggression and need training in self-control, 
but it would only make matters worse if you tried to convince them that their problem was badness. They usually already believe they are rotten human beings, and that is part of their problem. Labeling them as bad mothers would be inaccurate, and it would also be irresponsible, like trying to put out a fire by throwing gasoline on it. At this point, I was trying to show Nancy that she was just defeating herself by labeling herself as a bad mother. I hoped to show her that no matter how she defined bad mother, the definition would be unrealistic. Once she gave up the destructive tendency to mope and label herself as worthless, we could then go on to coping strategies for helping her son with his problems at school. Nancy, but I still have the feeling I'm a bad mother. David, well, once again, what is your definition? Someone who doesn't give her child enough attention, positive attention. I'm so busy in school, and when I do pay attention, I'm afraid it may be all negative attention. Who knows? That's what I'm saying. A bad mother is one who doesn't give her child enough attention, you say. Enough for what? For her child to do well in life. Do well in everything or in some things? In some things, no one can do well at everything. Does Bobby do well at some things? Does he have any redeeming virtues? Oh, yes, there are many things he enjoys and does well at. Then you can't be a bad mother, according to your definition, because your son does well at many things. Then why do I feel like a bad mother? It seems that you're labeling yourself as a bad mother because you'd like to spend more time with your son, and because you sometimes feel inadequate, and because there is a clear-cut need to improve your communication with Bobby. But it won't help you solve these problems if you conclude automatically you are a bad mother. Does that make sense to you? If I paid more attention to him and gave him more help, he could do better at school and he could be a whole lot happier. I feel it's my fault when he doesn't do well. So you are willing to take the blame for his mistakes? Yes, it's my fault, so I'm a bad mother. And you also take the credit for his achievements and for his happiness? No, he should get the credit for that, not me. Does that make sense, that you're responsible for his faults but not his strengths? No. Do you understand the point I'm trying to make? Yep. Bad mother is an abstraction. There is no such thing as a bad mother in this universe. Right, but mothers can do bad things. They're just people, and people do a whole variety of things, good, bad, and neutral. Bad mother is just a fantasy. There's no such thing. The chair is a thing. A bad mother is an abstraction. Do you understand that? I got it, but some mothers are more experienced and more effective than others. Yes, there are degrees of effectiveness at parenting skills, and most everyone has plenty of room for improvement. The meaningful question is not, am I a good or bad mother, but rather, what are my relative skills and weaknesses, and what can I do to improve? I understand that approach makes more sense, and it feels much better. When I label myself bad mother, I just feel inadequate and depressed, and I don't do anything productive. Now I see what you've been driving at. Once I give up criticizing myself, I'll feel better, and maybe I can be more helpful to Bobby. Right. So when you look at it that way, you're talking about coping strategies. For example, what are your parenting skills? How can you begin to improve on those skills? Now that's the type of thing I would suggest with regard to Bobby. Seeing yourself as a bad mother eats up emotional energy and distracts you from the task of improving your mothering skills. It's irresponsible. Right. If I can stop punishing myself with that statement, I'll be much better off and I can start working toward helping Bobby. 
The moment I stop calling myself a bad mother, I'll start feeling better. Yes. Now, what can you say to yourself when you have the urge to say, I'm a bad mother? I can say I don't have to hate my whole self if there is a particular thing I find I dislike about Bobby or if he has a problem at school. I can try to define that problem and attack that problem and work towards solving it. Right. Now that's a positive approach. I like it. You refute the negative statement and then add a positive statement. I like that. We then worked on answering several automatic thoughts she had written down after the call from Bobby's teacher. You can see them illustrated in Figure 4-4 on the enhancement. As Nancy learned to refute her self-critical thoughts, she experienced much-needed emotional relief. She was then able to develop some specific coping strategies designed to help Bobby with his difficulties. The first step of her coping plan was to talk to Bobby about the difficulties he had been having so as to find out what the real problem was. Was he having difficulties, as his teacher had suggested? What was his understanding of the problem? Was it true that he was feeling tense and low in confidence? Had his homework been particularly hard for him recently? Once Nancy had obtained this information and defined the real problem, she realized she would then be in a position to work toward an appropriate solution. For example, if Bobby said he found some of his courses particularly difficult, she could develop a reward system at home to encourage him to do extra homework. She also decided to read several books on parenting skills. Her relationship with Bobby improved, and his grades and behavior at school underwent a rapid turnabout. Nancy's mistake had been to view herself in a global way, making the moralistic judgment that she was a bad mother. This type of criticism incapacitated her because it created the impression that she had a personal problem so big and bad that no one could do anything about it. The emotional upset this labeling caused prevented her from defining the real problem, breaking it down into its specific parts, and applying appropriate solutions. If she had continued to mope, there was the distinct possibility that Bobby would have continued to do poorly, and she would have become increasingly ineffectual. How can you apply what Nancy learned to your own situation? When you are down on yourself, you might find it helpful to ask what you actually mean when you try to define your true identity with the negative label such as a fool, a sham, a stupid dope, etc. Once you begin to pick these destructive labels apart, you will find they are arbitrary and meaningless. They actually cloud the issue, creating confusion and despair. Once rid of them, you can define and cope with any real problems that exist. Summary. When you are experiencing a blue mood, the chances are that you are telling yourself you are inherently inadequate or just plain no good. You will become convinced that you have had a bad core or are essentially worthless. To the extent that you believe such thoughts, you will experience a severe emotional reaction of despair and self-hatred. You may even feel that you'd be better off dead because you are so unbearably uncomfortable and self-denigrating. You may become inactive and paralyzed, afraid and unwilling to participate in the normal flow of life. Because of the negative emotional and behavioral consequences of your harsh thinking, the first step is to stop telling yourself you were worthless. However, you probably won't be able to do this until you become absolutely convinced that these statements are incorrect and unrealistic. How can this be accomplished? You must first consider that a human life is an ongoing process that involves a constantly changing physical body, as well as an enormous number of rapidly changing thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. 
Your life, therefore, is an evolving experience, a continual flow. You are not a thing. That's why any label is constricting, highly inaccurate, and global. Abstract labels such as worthless or inferior communicate nothing and mean nothing. But you may still be convinced you are second-rate. What is your evidence? You may reason, I feel inadequate, therefore I must be inadequate. Otherwise, why would I be filled with such unbearable emotions? Your error is in emotional reasoning. Your feelings do not determine your worth, simply your relative state of comfort or discomfort. Rotten, miserable internal states do not prove that you are a rotten, worthless person, merely that you think you are. Because you are in a temporarily depressed mood, you are thinking illogically and unreasonably about yourself. Would you say that states of mood elevation and happiness prove you are great or especially worthy? Or do they simply mean that you are feeling good? Just as your feelings do not determine your worth, neither do your thoughts or behaviors. Some may be positive, creative, and enhancing. The great majority are neutral. Others may be irrational, self-defeating, and maladaptive. These can be modified if you are willing to exert the effort. But they certainly do not and cannot mean that you are no good. There is no such thing in this universe as a worthless human being. Then how can I develop a sense of self-esteem? You may ask. The answer is, you don't have to. You don't have to do anything especially worthy to create or deserve self-esteem. All you have to do is turn off that critical, haranguing inner voice. Why? Because that critical inner voice is wrong. Your internal self-abuse springs from illogical, distorted thinking. Your sense of worthlessness is not based on truth. It's just the abscess which lies at the core of depressive illness. So remember three crucial steps when you're upset. One, zero in on those automatic negative thoughts and write them down. Don't let them buzz around in your head. Snare them on paper. Two, read over the list of ten cognitive distortions. Learn precisely how you are twisting things and blowing them out of proportion. Three, substitute a more objective thought that puts the lie to the one which made you look down on yourself. As you do this, you'll begin to feel better. You'll be boosting your self-esteem, and your sense of worthlessness, and of course your depression, will disappear.